This morning we're going to turn one last time to the book of Habakkuk. We've been for the last three weeks studying the book of Habakkuk, and today we draw our study to a close in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of His praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from His hand and there is the hiding of His power. Before Him goes pestilence and plague comes after Him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kishon under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. You cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. The sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble. Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet. And makes me walk on my high places. For the choir director. On my stringed instruments. I have to tell you that I'm really excited about Habakkuk chapter 3. I have been eager to preach this passage to you this morning. Before I let my eagerness loose. And before we jump into our study. Let's pause and ask the Lord for his help. Father we pray. Now, that you would hear our prayers as the song we sing. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, mold and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. So speak, O Lord, 
and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Speak to us today for your glory. And speak to us today about your son, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I've heard the report and I fear, Habakkuk says in verse 2. Any of us who've lived any length of time can relate to that sentence. Because if we have lived for a while, all of us know what it's like to hear a report and to be gripped with fear or gripped with emotion. That's why we can remember exactly where we were when we heard the report that the World Trade Centers had been attacked. Or exactly where we were when we heard the report that the Space Shuttle Challenger had exploded. Or some of you can remember exactly where you were when you heard the report that President Kennedy had been assassinated. There are certain reports that you hear that so rattle you and maybe shatter you that you will remember them forever. And this is one for Habakkuk. For some of you, those kind of memories are even more personal because you can remember when you heard the report that a loved one had passed away. Or you heard the report that you or someone that you love had been diagnosed with some terminal disease. We all know what it feels like to hear a report and feel like we've been punched in the stomach. We all know what it feels like to get news that leaves us shocked and unnerved and afraid. That's why the Bible is such a good book. Because the Bible is filled with folks like us. People who heard things, saw things, and were left shocked and wobble-kneed and afraid. And Habakkuk is one such character. He says, Lord, I've heard the report about you, and I am frankly afraid. I'm afraid. What report? Well, the report in chapter 1 that the Lord was going to use the dreaded Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to overrun Judea. God's people, Habakkuk's people. And the report in chapter 2 that eventually the Chaldeans themselves would be overthrown. Now you have to imagine the shockwaves that that report or those two reports would have sent through someone like Habakkuk. What we have in Habakkuk 1 and 2 is basically God saying thousands of people are about to die, Habakkuk. And Habakkuk must be thinking to himself, I might be one of them. Thousands of people are about to die in war. When the Chaldeans sweep through chapter 1, verse 11, like a cold winter wind, Habakkuk's homeland, the promised land, was going to be thrown to the ground like a withered leaf. That's what God was saying. And not only that, but the mighty empire of Babylonia, the Chaldeans, who ruled the world, were themselves like a rotted out tree about to fall as well, chapter 2. So you have to imagine what that sounded like to Habakkuk. The only way we can imagine it is for us to imagine that we've just heard that the world superpower of today, which happens to be our country, the United States of America, was about to be attacked, overrun, and overtaken by a foreign power. Can you imagine that? We can't even imagine what Habakkuk was hearing. Not only was his country going to be destroyed, but the country that ruled the world was about to fall. Everything that Habakkuk knew and everything that the people of his day knew was about to be turned upside down. No wonder he's afraid. No wonder he says, I've heard the report and I fear. And Habakkuk then serves as a model for us 
for what we should do when we hear the report that makes us fear. When we hear a report that makes our knees weak and makes our hearts stand still. It may be a national report. It may be something on the news. It may be something in your own personal life. But Habakkuk is an example for us. But before we look at his example, I want you to notice one more thing in verse 2. Habakkuk said, Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. For Habakkuk, the report and the corresponding fear weren't mainly about international politics. They weren't merely about war. His fear wasn't simply about a national crisis. It wasn't really about personal safety either. The report and the fear that came with it, Habakkuk says, are about you, God. Because God was the one who was anchoring this news report. And more than that, God was the one who was orchestrating all the events that were about to happen that Habakkuk was so afraid of. And more than that, because God was the only one to whom Habakkuk could turn. And so he says, this is about you. I've heard the report about you, God, and about what you are going to do. And the things that are about to mushroom out of this report that I hear are coming from the hand of God. So this is about God, Habakkuk says. This is about you, God, and it's about my relationship to you. And I simply want to remind you before we go on that we have to come to think this way as well. That Whatever reports that we hear that make us tremble are about God. Always. They're about God. So suppose that you go home today and you pick up your voicemail and it tells you that someone in your family or someone that you dearly love was killed this morning in a car crash. What's your initial response going to be? What's going to be pain? It's going to be grief, certainly, and those things are appropriate. But along with those things, your initial response needs to be, Lord, this is about you. Lord, you are the one who is sovereign over life and death. Not even sparrows die without your permission, Matthew chapter 10. So you are the one who's in control of this, and you, Romans 8, are working this for my good, and you are the only one to whom I can go. This is about you. This car crash is not really about the police reports. It's not really about the funeral arrangements. It's not really about getting all the answers of why it happened. It's about you, God. I need to know what you want me to learn. I need to know how you want me to respond. I need you to help me to trust in you. We need to respond this way to any difficulty that arises in our lives. It's not, first of all, about the circumstances. It's about God. Because God is the one who controls the circumstances. And God is the one to whom we uh, must flee when we face these things. Our problems are always about God. So what should you do when you're shaking like a leaf, when you hear the report that makes you fear? Habakkuk's a wonderful example. And the first thing to say is that Habakkuk understood what we need to understand, that all of our problems are not mainly about the circumstances, they're about God. I've heard the report about you, he says, and I fear. But let me now trace through the rest of this chapter and show you the other ways that Habakkuk responded. This first way is just a kind of a mental way that I've been telling you, but let me give you four practical things that Habakkuk did. How did he respond to the report that made him fear? Number one, he prayed. He prayed. James says, Is anyone among you suffering? Habakkuk was. Then he must pray. James 5.13. That's exactly what Habakkuk did. He was suffering. He was afraid. So what did he do? He prayed. Verse 1 tells us that this whole chapter is a prayer. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to 
Shigiana. What does the word Shigianoth mean? Well, my marginal notes in my Bible, and maybe yours do as well, say that Shigianoth is the Hebrew word for a highly emotional, poetic form. They had different kinds of poetry. Habakkuk wrote this particular chapter in a form of poetry that would let everyone who read it know there's a lot of emotion behind what I've written here. So in other words, Habakkuk didn't just pray. Habakkuk prayed. Habakkuk poured out his whole soul in a flood of emotions before the Lord. And then probably sometime later, he recorded his thoughts on paper and put it to music. That's what the closing line of the book is all about for the choir director on my stringed instruments. But when we read this, when we hear it, we shouldn't simply see this as a neat and tidy religious poem. That's what it is right now in front of us. But that's not how it came out when Habakkuk prayed it. We shouldn't picture Habakkuk in his study saying to himself, you know, I think I'd like to write a song this week about... Uh, what to do, and how to follow God when you're in the dark. That's not what was going on. Habakkuk prayed this, and it was turbulent. The times were turbulent. His emotions were turbulent. So we read this, and we should hear an actual prayer, prayed by an actual man who had actual pain in his breast as he wrestled with God. Only later were Habakkuk's emotions kind of cleaned up and put to music and put on paper. And the the emotion that Habakkuk pours out here teaches us something about the way we pray. Prayer is our first response. Well, our first response is, God, this is about you. And then the natural outflow is, I'm going to talk to you about this. But when we pray, when we feel like the wind's knocked out of us, and we go to the Lord in prayer, we should get by ourselves and not be afraid to pour out everything before Him. To tell Him everything, to let our emotions show before Him, they are appropriate. I don't think anyone here would disagree with anything that I've said so far. When we're in trouble, we should pray. Everybody say amen. When we're in trouble, we should pray, and it's okay to pray with emotions. People say, yes, that's true. We all agree with that in our heads, I think. But do you know what many of us do in reality? Many of us do the exact opposite, don't we? When we're in trouble, do we pray first? Sometimes we don't. When our child is sick, what's our first response often? Is it to call on the Lord or to call the doctor? When our car breaks down, what do we do first? Do we call on the Lord, open our lips in prayer, or do we open up the hood of the car and act like we know what we're looking at? Many of us do the second. These are small things, but what about when we're depressed or lonely? Is our first response to go to the Lord, or is it for many of us to go to the Internet or the television? or the refrigerator. See, we know that our first response should be to go to God, but many times we're all guilty of going many other places. Now, I'm not saying that you should never call a mechanic, and I'm not saying that you should never go to the doctor, not least of all because there are two of them with us this morning. However, I am saying that I find it strange in my own life how often I run to the human solutions before I run to God. How often I look for answers in the yellow pages, as it were, before I look for them in the pages of the Bible. And I would guess that most of you are the same as me. We know that we should pray. We know our first response should be go to God, but we don't do it. Why don't we do it? Why don't we call upon the Lord as quickly, as often, as confidently and consistently as we should? I think sometimes it's because we don't really believe that this particular problem, whatever it may be, is about God. 
We don't really believe it's about God. We don't think that He has anything much to do with it. Because we can't imagine that there's anything that we might need to learn here. And frankly, most of us are all too confident that we can handle a lot of things on our own. Let me help you understand what I mean by saying we don't really believe the problems are about God. I'll bet that when your power goes out, you don't call Cincinnati Bell. Because the problem's not about Cincinnati Bell, is it? When your power goes out, the problem's not about Bell, it's about Duke Energy. They are the ones who control the power. They are the ones who can repair the problem. So they are the ones you call. And what I want to say to you is that we handle all of our problems the same way we handle power outages. When anything else breaks in our life, we do the same thing as we do when the power goes off. We call the person whom we think can fix it. Whether it's a broken clutch or a broken bone or a broken heart or a broken relationship, we call the person we think we can fix it. And that, you see, is why we so often fail to call God. Because He's like Cincinnati Bell. He doesn't really have much to do with this problem. Maybe the problem is about something that we think is too small for His notice. Or maybe we think the problem is too urgent to actually stop for a moment and take it to the Lord before we proceed with other things. Maybe we just think it's not a part of the God category of our lives. Or maybe we think to ourselves, this is something I can handle on my own. This is not that big of a deal. In short, we tell ourselves subconsciously, this problem isn't really about God. It's about Duke Energy. It's about the financial seminar that's coming up. It's about the principal at school. It's about this, that, or the other thing. We don't always pray as we should because we don't always see all of life as being about God. So when we hit a roadblock, we're not often asking what God wants us to learn. We're not often asking where we might have taken a wrong turn. We don't often ask whether or not we need to slow down. We just want to call someone who will get the roadblock out of the way. Maybe that's another reason why we don't call upon God. Because we have a sneaking suspicion sometimes that God has put the roadblock in our way and He's not going to take it out of the way. So we call someone else who we think might be able to do so. Foolish, but that's the way we think. Because more than anything... More than hearing from God, more than obeying His will, more than learning from our difficulties, sometimes our only desire is just to get the roadblock out of the way so that we can continue on the way we were going. Habakkuk was different. He heard a report that caused him to fear. He heard a report that caused him national concern and personal pain. And what he didn't do was travel to Jerusalem to get an audience with the king. He didn't go to Jerusalem and get all the elders together and say, what are we going to do about this problem? He didn't gather a meeting of the prophets to discuss what could be done either. Instead, what Habakkuk did was he went into his bedroom and he poured out his whole soul before the Lord in prayer. And we need to learn to do the same. So number one, pray. Number two, what can you do when you hear the report that causes you to fear? Remember. Remember. When we are afraid, we should remember. Particularly, we should remember the mighty acts of God that He has already worked on our behalf and on behalf of His people. That's what Habakkuk is doing in verses 3-15. through 15. We won't read them again, but let me just walk you through them and you can notice what Habakkuk's doing. He's remembering. He's calling to mind the mighty acts of God when God redeemed His people from slavery in Egypt and brought them safely into the Promised Land. Let me show you that. Just a few a few verses that we'll pull out. Verse 3, His splendor 
covers the heavens. That's probably a reminder in Habakkuk's mind of how God covered his people with a cloud by day and a pillar by night. So that when they looked up, they either saw a cloud or they saw a pillar. His splendor covered the heavens. They didn't see the stars. Verse 5, before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. Surely that must refer to the plague that God brought upon Egypt in order to deliver his people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Verse 8, Habakkuk seems to be remembering the parting of the Red Sea and later the parting of the River Jordan as they went into the Promised Land. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea? In other words, God, you struck the river. It wasn't because you were angry at the river. It was because you were redeeming your people. Verse 10, The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. I think he's picturing in his mind and describing poetically when the waters that were towering above the Egyptians in the middle of the Red Sea lifted high their hands and began their descent to crash down upon the Egyptian army. Verse 11, he speaks of the sun standing still, just like it did in Joshua chapter 10 when Joshua and the Israelites defeated the Amorites with the help of the Lord. You get the point. When faced with a great obstacle, Habakkuk immediately prayed and then he went to reminding himself and God of all the great wonders that God had done on behalf of his people in days of old. He's saying to himself, in effect, this. God, we're facing great difficulty, no doubt. But this has happened before. And you've never yet forsaken your people. In fact, you've worked mighty miracles on our behalf. And let me remind you what they were. And let me remind myself now that if you've done this in the past, you can do it again and I can trust you. And I can wait patiently, verse 16, for the people to arise who will invade us because God is with us. God has always been with His people and He will be with us now. He's remembering, reminding Himself. And this is the perfect strategy when you're facing giant despair. When you're in trouble, the strategy is remember what God has done. It's probably most helpful to remind yourself of what God has done in the Bible because the Bible cannot fail. Your memory may fail of things that God did in your life, but the Bible is always here. It will never go away. Most helpful is to remember the things God did in the Bible. You need to remember stories like the Exodus, stories like Daniel in the lion's den and David and Goliath, stories like that of Abraham's faith in being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. Those aren't just for Sunday school children. Those are for adults to remember when they're in trouble. We need to remember stories like Peter in prison and Paul being rescued from shipwreck and so on. God gave us these stories so that we might see over and over again how mightily He works on behalf of His people and so that we might rehearse these things for ourselves when we need confidence, when we need to go on in faith In the face of difficulty, we can rehearse these things for us. And that's why it's so important as an aside that you read your Bible regularly. That you don't just let me give it to you, but that you read it regularly. Because as you read your Bible, these stories of God's faithfulness will begin to line the pathways of your mind like mighty oaks under which you can flee when you're in a thunderstorm. You need them. You need them to be planted in your mind so that you can remember them in the time of trouble. Which is the tallest of those oaks? Which is the greatest story? It's the story of God becoming a man, isn't it? And living a life of perfect love to God and 
to humanity and dying on a Roman cross so that we might be forgiven and rising again on the third day to prove that death has been defeated. That's the highest of the oaks. That's the greatest of the stories. We need to be constantly reminding ourselves of the old, old story of Jesus and His love. And if we do, we will be able to weather any storm just like Habakkuk here. Because that story, the story of Jesus Christ and His life and His death and His resurrection reminds us that even though God's lightning bolts may be temporarily flashing all around us to chastise us for our sins, it won't always be this way because God has fully forgiven us in Christ. And that story reminds us that even if we suffer here for a little while, Jesus is preparing a place for us in heaven. This life isn't all there is. And that story reminds us that even though everything may seem to be wrong, God works even the darkest of circumstances for the good of His people. And Jesus proved that once and for all at the cross when He turned what seemed like a black hole in history into the doorway to paradise. The cross seemed like the end, not the beginning. But it's proof that even the blackest days, God works for our good. That's why the hymn writer said this, Speaking of the blood of Jesus, this is all my hope and peace. If I just have this, I will have hope and I will have peace. I will survive. I will even thrive in the darkest of thunderstorms. It may also help to tell yourself stories that aren't quite so old. Stories of how God has intervened in your own daily life. Stories of answered prayers. Stories of great deliverance. Stories of God's steady faithfulness that may not be amazing. Stories that you would share with a crowd but just stories of God's continually working in your life. You need to rehearse those for yourself as well. You need to remember those as well. Some of you have done this for me in recent days as I've struggled with discouragement. I got several notes and calls and visits from different people, and there's one consistent message that kept coming again and again and again. Remember all that God has done these last four and a half years. Look how far He's brought us. And that helped me. Thank you. And the point is, it always helps to remember what God has done on our behalf. On a more personal level, it's perhaps most helpful to remember what God has done initially in bringing you to faith in Christ, way back whenever it was. To remember who you once were and who you now are. C.J. Mahaney is a pastor in Maryland, and he describes the usefulness of a good memory like this. He says, I've lived in the same part of Maryland since I was a boy. Hardly a month goes by that I'm not reminded of who I once was. Before God saved me in 1972, I was a blasphemer. I lived for myself and my own pleasure. I lived in rebellion against God and mocked those who followed Him. I spent my high school and college years deeply immersed in the drug culture. Sometimes late at night, my friends and I would seek out quiet, isolated places where we could come down safely from drug highs. A D.C. monument, a peaceful street under thick, deep trees, the terminal at what was then a little-used airport called Dulles. Someday soon, I'll be near one of those places again, and the memories will flood back in. I'll remember what I once was and be reminded of what I now am. Often my eyes will fill with tears at the memories of my foolishness and sin, and in the same instant, my heart will be filled with an unspeakable, holy joy I'm no longer the same. By the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, I've been forgiven of the countless sins I've committed. The point 
is not that everyone needs to have a similar dramatic testimony. The point is that a good memory, particularly of the mighty acts of God in saving your soul, is a great tool in the hand of the person who's discouraged or afraid. A few reminders of what God has done in the past will go a long way towards giving you comfort in the present and hope for the future. So when you're afraid, number two, remember. Number three, tremble. Tremble. Habakkuk says in verse 16, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place, I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. I don't think this is a poetic flourish. I think Habakkuk really did literally tremble at the news that God had given him in chapters 1 and 2. And he describes that here. His emotions overcame him. His heart, his inward parts there, trembled. His lips were quivering. His knees were weak. I think that's what he means when he says, decay enters my bones. I think he meant that his knees got weak. This is how he felt as he was praying this prayer to the Lord. He trembled. And so should we. This passage is helpful because it lays aside a couple of myths that are often passed around in the Christian life. First, it lays aside the myth that Christians should never be afraid. You ever heard that or at least heard someone insinuate that? You're a Christian. You shouldn't be afraid. This passage puts aside the idea that real Christians are religious Rambos who have ice in our veins and nerves of steel spiritually. It's not so. The reality is that sometimes we're scared to death. Sometimes we don't know what to do. This is why the Bible is so filled with exhortations. Do not fear. Because God knows that we are afraid. And that we're going to be afraid. We are like weak and helpless serfs working on a farm somewhere and we need our king desperately to be valiant for us. We cannot do it on our own. So many things cause us to fear. So in that sense, trembling is good for us. Because it reminds us that we're not God. Second, though, Habakkuk's trembling here lays aside the silly and mostly modern idea that Christians should never be afraid of God. Ever heard anybody say that? Christians should never be afraid of God. I'm sure that I've said that. And the way it comes out is usually like this. The biblical command to fear the Lord is not so much about fear as we would think of it, but it's about respect and honor. Now that's partly true, isn't it? The biblical command to fear the Lord is about respect and it is about honor. But the biblical command to fear the Lord also has a lot to do with good, old-fashioned, garden-variety concern for your own safety when you're sinning. That's also what it means to fear the Lord. In light of the holiness of God and the justice of God and in light of our own sins, there are times when we should be concerned for our own safety. Nothing else, Ananias and Sapphira teach us that in Acts chapter 5. And this is what we see with Habakkuk. He's genuinely concerned for his safety. Lord, I have heard the report about you, i.e. the havoc that you're about to wreak on us, chapters 1 and 2, and I am afraid. He wasn't mainly concerned about the Chaldeans. He was mainly concerned about God. I have heard the report about you and I fear. Habakkuk had a healthy fear of God. Say, well, Jesus would never teach that. Yes, he would. He says in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who kill the body, 
but are unable to kill the soul. In other words, don't fear the Chaldeans, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. That's God. God is the one, Revelation, who throws people into the lake of fire. God is the one who has the power of death over body and soul. And Jesus says, be afraid of that. Be afraid of that. So we aren't mainly to fear men and circumstances. So in that sense, we should say, do not fear. But we are to fear God. Given our sinfulness, there is an appropriateness to genuinely being afraid in the presence of God. And if you do a little biblical research, you'll find this to be true. Just look up when you get home today the various places where different people encountered God face to face and see what their constant response was. Hint, it wasn't to go on television and tell everybody on Channel 43 of their vision of heaven. That's not what they did. Actually, what they did when they saw God face to face is they fell down like dead men, usually, because they were so afraid, because they were so sinful and God was so holy. And even though they knew about the mercy and forgiveness of God, they were afraid in His presence. Not because God is vicious, not because God is unmerciful, but because God is like any good earthly father and He's much, much better than any earthly father. I want Julia and I want Andrew to know that their daddy loves them, their daddy will do anything for them, their daddy will always be there for them. But I also want them to know that you don't trifle with your father. And if you're a father, you know that you can love your children and also want them to know that they don't trifle with their dad. You want them to know that when they've incurred your discipline, they should tremble because a good father is going to obey the Bible and spank his children. That's not going to hurt them. It's not going to kill them, certainly. The Bible says that. However, it is going to make them go, I better think twice before I disobey my dad. And that's the way we should think with God. We should say to ourselves, in the light of who God is, in the light of the examples we have in Scripture, of God's discipline of His own children, we should think twice before we disobey our dad. So when we have a natural fear of of pain or death or whatever it may be, something that makes our knees weak, we need to cultivate that natural fear into a healthy spiritual fear of God. We need to tremble before our Father in Heaven. And number four... What do you do when you fear? What do you do when you hear the report that makes you fear? Rejoice. Rejoice. Read Habakkuk closing out his prayer in verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. So when you've heard the report that makes you fear, rejoice. Rejoice. Not mainly in your circumstances, but in God. Habakkuk is describing living through the Great Depression, to put it in our terms. Everything was gone. And yet he could rejoice. Rejoice even if the crops failed, even if the animals died, even if there was no food to eat, I will, verse 18, rejoice in the Lord. And he's reminding us that the essence of Christian joy is not that we have God's gifts, food and safety and so on. The essence of Christian joy is that we have God. That we have God. 
Verses like these, again, not to pick on Channel 43 too much, but verses like these make so much of what we see on those television Christian programs appear to be the nonsense that they are. How could you say some of the things that are said in our contemporary culture about prosperity after you read Habakkuk 3? Our joy doesn't come from God's gifts. It comes from having God Himself. And Habakkuk goes on and explains what that means. He says, first of all, we rejoice not in a God who frees us from all difficulty, but in a God who makes us nimble enough to stand up under the difficulty. That's what he's talking about in verse 19. He made my feet like hind's feet. And it makes me walk on high places. He's saying, God makes me able to walk in these difficult, craggy places like a graceful deer. I can stand and I can go forward in difficulty because God has made me nimble. God has made me strong. That's where his joy comes from. Not that God took away the difficulty. God made him strong. And God's people throughout the ages have been able to stand like noble stags in the face of excruciating difficulty. Things that we could never even imagine. Because the Lord God, verse 19, is our strength. And furthermore, Habakkuk says, we rejoice in a God, or we rejoice not in a God who frees us from earthly difficulty, but in a God who frees us from eternal punishment. God doesn't free us from earthly difficulty. He enables us to stand under it. God doesn't free us from earthly difficulty. He frees us from eternal punishment. Habakkuk, verse 18, calls Him the God of my salvation. He's saying, God saved me. He's not talking about from the Chaldeans. God clearly wasn't saving Him from the Chaldeans. When He says the God of my salvation, He's referring to something eternal. God saved me. Looking back from our perspective... At the cross, we would say God sent His own Son to drain the cup of His righteous wrath so that no matter how much God may discipline me on this earth, I know that things will not always be this way. I know that I'm forgiven. I know that I have a home in heaven. No matter how difficult this life may be, I know that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. I know that because God is the God of my salvation. And so we rejoice, not in a God of earthly prosperity, but in a God of eternal salvation, Habakkuk says. So when you hear the report that makes you fear, make sure you remember that and rejoice. Now in closing, I just want to, to make a left turn on you and shift gears a little bit and give you maybe a five-minute uh, mini-sermon from another idea that comes out of Habakkuk 3, and that's from verse 2. We've discussed at length the fact that this whole chapter is a prayer and how we should respond when we fear. We should pray, we should remember, we should tremble, we should rejoice. But we've not yet actually thought about what Habakkuk's one prayer request was. The whole chapter is a prayer, 19 verses, but there's only one prayer request. What is it? Let's read it together in verse 2. Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. Oh Lord, here it is. Revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. What did Habakkuk ask? He asked basically this. God, work again among your people the way you have in years gone by. Do something again like you did in the Exodus. Make us, your people, what we once were so that we don't have to fear your judgments. 
Make us what we once were. Do what you once did among us. In modern terms, we would say that Habakkuk prayed for revival. For revival. Oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. This is one of the passages that gives us the word that we use, revival. Pray for revival. What is revival? All sorts of definitions that people use. It's not a series of meetings, you know, Monday through Friday or whatever it is. It's not that. Revival, I'll give you my definition. Revival is God in an instant breathing new life into His people whose faith is decaying, whose fire is fading, whose zeal is flagging, whose holiness is tarnished, and whose churches are dying. That's revival. God in an instant breathing new life into His people. That's revival in a sentence. Let me give you a story that I think will paint a little bit more colorful picture. Here's revival played out. This is a description of what God did in a small Welsh mining town in 1904-05. On 8 November 1904 at the Baptist Church in Ross, Wales, the minister began what was planned to be a 10-day mission. The closing of the mission commenced at 10 o'clock in the morning and went to 10 o'clock in the evening. In other words, they had the morning service and God came in such an extraordinary way that they stayed there all day. It wasn't planned, but God came that day in an instant. At this point, the town of Ross was ablaze with a revival that lasted well into the following year. This was a revival of praise and thanksgiving in which people learned to enjoy God. There was a life and reality about everything that was done in the churches. People were involved with eternal issues and things didn't seem to matter anymore. On Sundays, the chapels were full by six in the morning. Crowds could be heard simply walking on the streets, singing and praising God. Though the men spent hours in the chapels after a full day of work, no one appeared to be tired. There was a life in the air, and people seemed to be physically as well as spiritually revived. The effect of the revival on the unconverted was amazing. Hundreds were saved, and it seemed as though the whole town was coming to church. A feared fighter of the town fled to the mountains to escape the revival, and God converted him there. After his conversion, he was so full of joy that he reproached the Christians by asking, Why didn't you tell me, my friends, that it was like this? Life changed in the coal pits as well. And men would meet for prayer before the day's work commenced. Quote, The Spirit was in the pits. It was as pleasant to go to work as to go to a place of worship. There was no tension or disputes among the miners, and output was 100%. Everyone was talking about being saved, and men were even saved down in the mines. Even children of six... And eight years of age were talking about Jesus even though they were not all converted. And teachers would weep as they overheard the children's conversations. And here's an example of one of them. Two children speaking to one another. Do you know what has happened at Ross? No, I don't know. Except that Sunday comes every day now. Don't you know? No, I don't. Why? Jesus Christ has come to live in Ross now. Do we need such a revival in our day? Our study of chapter 1 in Habakkuk, I think, revealed that we do. For despite the fact that America now has more and bigger churches than it's ever had before, our newspapers reveal that we have more and bigger problems in our country than we've ever had before. And they're not the government's problems. The government is made up of the people and by the people and for the people. There are problems. We've made this place the stinking mess that it is. We need revival. Our nation's more secular now than ever before Not because there are less churches, but because the churches are more secular than they've ever been before. That's the problem we have. I would go so far as to say that we need revival right here at Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church. 
Now, God is at work here, and of that I'm certain. But there are areas, aren't there, where our faith is decaying, and our fire is fading, and our zeal is flagging, and some of our holiness is tarnished. There are instances of that. There are individuals that could say that about yourselves. The very lostness of our community around us, as we've thought about in recent days, is proof that Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church needs a revival of that holiness and change of life that attracted crowds in Wales. They didn't put up signs. They didn't have banners. They didn't have to go hand out water, which is a great thing to do. But people just came because they knew these people are different. Something is happening here. We need that. Because the task is too big for us. 10,000 people in our community and us to share the gospel to them. The task is too big for us. We need God to come and do in a moment what we could not do with 20 years of effort and planning. We need to pray as Habakkuk did. God, do it again. We've seen what You've done in the past. Do it again. So do we need revival? I believe we do. Will we pray for it? I hope so. Does God want to answer those prayers? Absolutely. Listen to His promise in chapter 2, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. you believe that God means that? Believe that He could fulfill that in our day? Could we begin to see the first ripple effects of this in our city and in our church? The only way we will probably find out is if we begin, like Habakkuk, to pray for revival.